edition of a Pipside Experts podcast with uh, Tom Moody, the former Australian rounder, two-time World Cup winner, coach of the Sunrisers Hyderabad and a number of other franchises and uh, one of the top class analysts and authors in the world of cricket today, Freddie Wild, gentlemen, welcome and welcome to everyone uh, under the sound of our voice and, and again into the third week of April and around the world. We must once again stress how much we sympathize and empathize with everyone in the various lockdown situations in Trinidad, in Australia, in the UK, where my colleagues are, are located right now. Thank you once again for listening. Um, just a reminder or putting you in remembrance as to what we talked about last week and we talked about spin and T20 cricket and its rise today. We're going to talk a little bit more about team constructs from a batting perspective. Hello, Tom. Hello, Freddie. Yeah, g'day, Bish. G'day, Freddie. And it's uh, good to be speaking to you. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to, to this topic. It's it's quite diverse, and I'm sure we're going to have a few differing opinions. On this topic of T20 batting orders. And it's it's been engrossing my mind for the last few years, really, as we've all been involved in some capacity of a next in, in T20 cricket. The whole concept of the batting order and the structure of it um, is something that sort of permeates my being. Who are the best personnel to fit in to those key positions? Uh, of course, uh, a T20 World Cup, just a reminder, supposed to take place later down the road in Australia. Um, how, you guys have sat at auction tables, both yourself and Freddie Tom. What sort of discussions and, and mindsets do you have? Well, I think, I think personally, I think it depends on um the management and their strategy and what they feel uh is the right approach and i think every and quite rightly so every coach and management has a a certain um brand they like to like to stick to and and trust Uh, so that then changes your priorities what we've got to understand is most franchise cricket um, tournaments have between six to eight teams. Uh, therefore, it's not like you've got first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick, fifth pick, and sixth pick, and you've got the best six batsmen to fit your top order. You're having to navigate some some tricky scenarios where you may not have first pick in round one. You might have fourth pick, and then the next round you might have third pick. So there's a lot of unpredictability around it. Um, but that's where your smart planning and the likes of Freddie become very valuable, um, where you have a, a strategy and, and, a, and a forecast to which direction you want to go and which players you want and what brand of cricket you want to play, and you stay very true to that. Um, and that's how I see it. Freddie's obviously worked with me. We um, put together the the uh, the uh, the invincibles in the the well it's not going to be uh, likely to be played this year in the hundred ball competition in the UK but uh, we work closely together there but Freddie's also worked with other coaches yeah yeah and 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 it's, it's you're right it's all about sort of the different firstly it fits into a broad there's a broad as you said there's a broader strategy that a team management or a coach will have um, and then from an analyst perspective it's kind of about answering the questions that those coaches 
are asking with relation to that strategy. So it might be that you sit down and you think, right, we're going to build a really bowling heavy team and we're looking for a specific batsman to anchor our top order, for example, and I will then go away and my job will be to filter the guys who are best suited for that role and then those names will be put to the table and there'll be a discussion about them. And, and Moods is right, there are lots of trade-offs. Um, you, you, you've got to prioritise who you're going to pick first and if you, you know, if you pick a bowler first, that means you can't take a batsman and there are lots of things you've got to weigh up and consider. Um, but it's all about sort of fitting these various pieces of the puzzle together and as Mood says, you can't just pick the best six players in the world. That's not how these things work. And as a result, it makes it a bit more complicated. But that's, I think, what we're going to go into a bit today is sort of discussing exactly what those kind of questions are, what you're sort of looking for from the different roles and the different players. And it all, as, as Tom said, it all fits into the strategy you're trying to play. Um, but yeah, the questions arise and, and it's about trying to find the right or the optimal answers and the optimal players to fit into those different spots. Some of the, the questions and, and comments that I have gotten, and I know that you guys have gotten a lot as well, have come from players listening to our podcast, former players, coaches, uh, fellow media people, folks. So I've had different levels of interaction and savviness and education on the game. And if I simplify this for, for the layman, if I'm looking at, at three phases uh, that have been articulated, the power play batting, the middle over batting, and then the finishing, with regards to our discussion last week, when we talked about bowling in that power play, the matchups, the spin versus pace versus guys swinging the ball immediately. Some people will say, and I myself will say, our openers have to play seam bowling and fast bowling very well. But the matchups dictate, <clears throat> pardon me, that there will be left arm spin depending on my weakness as a player. There will be off spin. There will be leg spin depending on my uh, weakness as a player. How then do I, as a a, a person building a team facilitate that skill set and looking for two opening batsmen or batters? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, the most important thing is you get uh, uh, each player complementing each other. So the obvious complement is a left-right-hand combination. Therefore, you can't have the most obvious matchup, and that is... You know, a team. If you're two op two right-hand openers, you don't have the you don't give the team a free pass and allow them to start off for the left-arm spinner, which statistically will prove that it's you know it's as good a match-up as you could have. So you try to avoid that. You may have uh, a situation where you have a player at the top of the order that his strength might be pace, uh, but at the other end you may have someone that complements that that his strength may be against spin. So if spin is bold in the first six overs, uh, you can counteract that and cause some damage. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, that particular um, example, pace spin, um, is one that we're seeing evolve in the game because, as we spoke last week, of the rise of spin in the power play. Um, we're seeing that batsmen who do bat in that phase are going to have to be better at dealing with it. Initially, when um, T20 started, the quicks, were, as we spoke about last week, the quicks generally took the new ball, and the guys who opened the batting were sort of traditional openers in that, in that respect, and they were stronger against pace. Um, in, in the last couple of years, we've seen teams begin to become aware of this, bowling more spin, and now we're seeing batting teams responding to that. And probably the most famous example of that um, was in the IPL, 
uh, at Kolkata Knight Riders. They obviously signed Chris Lynn, um, who was in fantastic form, coming off a brilliant big bash. Um, but he, as, as a, an Australian from, who plays his cricket at the Gabba, um, was very adept at dealing with pace on the ball and those quicker bowlers. And teams recognised that and basically would try and tie him down with spin. Now, KKR's clever answer to this was to use Sunil Narine as a pinch hitter alongside Lynn. Um, Narayan is one of the, the world's best hitters of spin bowling. He also has the added benefit of being a pinch hitter, something we're, I'm sure we'll discuss probably in a bit more detail shortly. But what was so good about Narayan is he was strong against, um, he was strong against spin. Lynn was strong against pace. He also had a right-hand, left-hand combination there. And it made it very difficult for teams to, to plan against KKR. Do you open with a spinner and therefore Narayan takes you down? Or do you open with a quick bowler um, and Lynn takes you down? I think uh, Moods is probably a good person to ask about this because he had particular success <laughs> against against Narine and Lim uh, with Sunrisers. So Moods, how did how did you stop him? Yeah, look, it's a, it's an interesting one because you, you, that combination gives you sleepless nights um, because you know that the game can be totally taken from you within 40 minutes of play. They can, you know destroy a game in no time if both of them are going. And they've done that before in combination. One game in particular, I remember against RCB in Bangalore, where uh, both of them were going at the same time and it was just carnage. It didn't matter who was bowling, it was disappearing. 106 um, for one they got in the power play that day, I think. Yeah, yeah, 106, <laughs> was it? Yeah, which yeah. was a world record for about yeah, six which is months. Just, till not you know, good, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you, you, it's just hard to get your head around the fact that you can get 106 runs in, in, uh, in just 36 balls. But still, you know, both of them are firing, and that's what happens. And that gives coaches and captains and teams, particularly bowlers, Bish, um, you know, sleepless nights because they're thinking, well, if uh, players like that kick off, how do we do this? Uh, what one of the things we would discuss, we'd recognise the threat, and we would have very clear plans around trying to shut that threat down. So the matchups are really important as far as we were concerned. We felt, particularly against Narine, um, pace was important, but movement was equally as important. And we were blessed to have. Uh, Bhuvaneshwar Kumar, who's one of the finest swing bowlers, you know, in the game at the moment. Um, and he's clever enough also with his changes of pace. He's got a, a couple of varieties of the knuckleball that he would bowl. So with, with the change of pace and also with the with the swing, we felt that it was it was a, a good matchup for uh, Narayan and a particularly good matchup for Lynn. Uh, because his accuracy was spot on, because Bhuvaneshwar Kumar was not concentrating on express pace. He was more concentrating on control and movement. So it was hard for, to, for Lynn to step and fetch someone like um, Bhuvaneshwar Kumar. Um, spin someone like Shakib Al-Hassan was the perfect matchup for, for Lynn. And mm. he removed Lynn on a couple of occasions over, over the period of time that we uh, had contests against KKR. So it was a case of making sure that Shakib would bowl as many balls as possible to Lynn. And uh, when it came to Narayan, Shak Shakib's role was more 
to sh- close him down and, and get the ball out of his arc. So he couldn't just have a free swing it and hit him where he would normally like to hit him as over mid-on to that sort of squarish mid-wicket range, which is very familiar ground for a lot of left-handers. So he'd more than likely bowl uh, around the wicket into the left-handers' ankles, pads, and try to close that arc down to, to, to prevent him from having a free swing off the stumps or from off stump or just outside off stump, which would be the normal line uh, for, a, for a spinner to the left-hander. So, yeah, just just on that same KKR situation there, there was a time, and I couldn't remember last IBL why it was, where, just as an example, Narayan, though, didn't open the batting on a couple of occasions, and I was trying to remember whether they were playing against a team that came with high pace, uh, and, and Shubman Gill opened the batting with Chris So... It makes an interesting dynamic those 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 counters because then you had two right-handed batters in Shubman Gill who played well at the top of the innings and who many felt uh, was probably better suited to that situation. So that's one of the examples where te- a team went away from the right-left combination, which, as you've always said, Tom, is nice to have, but it's not an absolute must-have. Yeah, and I think also it's worth saying as well that Sunrisers attack that Moods was able to call upon was one of the one of the strongest going around. So you know the, the, that Narayan Lin combination, um, Sunrisers managed to undo it, but it was I think, it, and it does provide a template for how teams should try and go about building a partnership in the power play. And we've always spoken about right left, as you said. I think pace spin is actually becoming a new version of that for the T20 age because matchups are so big. Um, if you can get partnerships together that are adept at pace and spin, then you really mess with the plans of the opposition. So I think one of the things as we move into the future with opening partnerships will be an emphasis on trying to get those two uh, sort of dual strengths. Otherwise, teams, as Moods will say, will just be able to exploit you with, you know, by bowling a lot of spin in the power play. That, that yeah, wasn't the, your the, team, the other... That wasn't the was it? <laughs> no, no, that's fine. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is one of the great, uh, uh, challenges, but one of the great excitements around uh, this format of the game is those just trying to get those small matchups right, so you can try to undermine uh, your opponent, uh, particularly an opponent that has an incredibly dangerous weapon that can blow you out of the water. So just those small uh, planned. Uh, matchups that are that really start at the auction table. Let's face it, that's that's where it starts. You've got to have the personnel. So it starts at the auction table, and then over the three-year window that you have these players, it's it's making sure that uh, they clearly understand their role, and you press the trigger at the right time uh, to, to to give them the opportunity to to take advantage of their uh, skill. But I think it's I think it's worth Touching on though, both Freddie and Bish, just the when we're talking about the power play, there, there's two different styles of, in my view, there's two different approaches. One is the approach where you go out like your KKR, which we're talking about, where you've got your Narayan and Lynn, two incredibly strong enforcers, um, and you you target 60 plus, uh, and that's that's your benchmark for the first six. Six overs, so you're looking at ten plus and over as a minimum. 
or you have more of a conservative approach and you again through your through your auction draft process you select accordingly you are happy for no wicket for 45 or one for 45 around that uh, around that sort of base where you feel right well we can now launch a competitive total that our bowling attack and our fielding unit can defend. Essentially, that, what, what we're talking about there is how much do you want to maximise the, the benefit of the fielding restrictions? You know, the, the power play with two men out is essentially asking the team, the batting team, to take some risks. It comes at a cost, and that is that early wickets, as we know, are particularly valuable. There's a stat that often gets spoken about. If you lose three wickets in the power play, you, you lose 77% of games. Three wickets obviously is a lot to lose, um, but it shows it's a long way to come back from that. So constantly teams are battling between, you know, it's a trade-off between attack and maximising the field restrictions and defence and keeping wickets in hand. And I, I think broadly, I think you guys I, you probably agree that the, the way you, um, which way you go is probably dependent on the rest of the makeup of your squad and the makeup of your side, where you're playing, home conditions. There are a lot of factors that come into it, but you, you immediately, how you approach that power play sets the template for the rest of the innings. What I'm noticing a lot in T20 cricket in the last, I would say the last year or two, and I want to take you back on that conversation because, okay, we have the power players like the Lind and the Ryan, the Aaron Finch and players like that. Uh, I can think of also other players who look to exploit that power play, not just with power, but with some innovation. I can think of a young player from Afghanistan, uh, Ramanula Gerbas, who I saw play against the West Indies uh, last year with the scoops, uh, guys who play those reverse shots, not just the power down the ground. And also I can think back a couple of seasons, Moods, and you'll be very aware of this as much as Freddie is. Kings 11 Punjab had a team that just went with George Bailey leading it, just went hard from ball one, till the last ball of the innings, just in talking about that balance that you're looking for, it depends really on the makeup of your team. The depth of your batting will dictate how hard you start and continue to go. I've seen teams with three down Freddie, and they just continue going. Teams were more afraid, in my view, um, four years ago. If they lost a couple of wickets early, they sort of pull back. But I'm finding less and less that teams now are willing to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think it's taken time. I think it's uh, taken time, Bish. It's it's more of a, a mindset um, conditioning, if I could put it that way, uh, right. that players, coaches, and and supporters, for that matter, are getting used to is that. This is the brand of cricket that uh, we, we play. It is not reckless. It's, it, it gives us a consistent result, and we've got the personnel to be able to take advantage of it. And we'd be disappointed if we don't take advantage of it. We don't maximise our personnel. It's like having a, a Ferrari car and driving around in first gear for the rest of its life. You know, a Ferrari has to be driven and driven hard through all the gears. Not that I've ever driven one, but I'm imagining <laughs> that's what happens. Um, so, and again, that does depend on what your strategy is. Um, 
uh, certainly teams that that I have been most of the teams I've been involved with has the 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 opposite strategy to that in that I would much rather uh, build a side that gives me a stable consistent base for us to be able to chase down whatever total that may be or set a total that my very strong bowling unit and a very, very combative fielding unit can shut down through I, I think that's just a, that's pure a, suffocation. That, that's an interesting point there, the, the reference to the bowling unit. I think that, um, as we've spoken about, Sunrisers have got, had a very strong attack, and we're using that as the example. I think it's more common for teams with strong bowling attacks to look to try and get to 50 for one or 50 for naught Whereas if you've got a slightly weaker bowling attack, I think you're more likely to pursue the strategy whereby you're going for 60 plus in the power play. You're needing to essentially achieve more with the bat. So you're taking, it is, it is a riskier strategy to go hard in the power play, but you're essentially saying, we haven't got the bowling attack to defend subpar, so we need to get above par here, and therefore we're going to go hard in the power play. I feel like that's quite often um, a way that, you know, something you'll see among teams. And in fact, that KKR example is quite a good one. KKR's bowling attack in the last couple of years certainly hasn't been quite as good as it has been four or five years before that. And as a result, we've seen them go a little bit harder with the bat. So I think every, every part of every team's strategy is very closely linked to, um, you know, something which might seem a long way away, such as their bowling unit, but it, it, does, it does influence how they go about it. And one thing I'd like to, to ask both of you guys as well is, is the, and I've touched on it briefly, is about pinch hitters. So obviously we spoke about Narine there being a spin hitter. What 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 the value of Narine was that he was uh, you know, he was essentially a bowler who I think the Melbourne Renegades um, used him as an opening batsman for the first time in the 2017-18 Big Bash, purely to target Michael Beer, who was a left-arm spinner. They didn't the Renegades didn't have a particularly strong spin hitter, and so they thought, well look, Narine's whacking him pretty well in the net, in the nets. Let's let's stick him up to open, and it worked out brilliantly. And obviously, as we spoke about. He's turned into a, a, a really successful pinch hitter. But the, the beauty of that role or that, or that and using him at like that is that if he does get out, the idea is that his wicket is not as costly as if it were Aaron Finch, for example, who is a top order batsman. Um, so you can get the benefit of the fielding restrictions or try and exploit them without necessarily incurring that same cost of losing an early wicket. And I'd pose the question to you guys. Do you think maybe we should see more pinch hitters than we do see in the modern game, given the benefit? I would rather naively say and have the caveat that if that pinch hitter is doing as good or better a job in terms of strike rate, in terms of the tempo of his innings, uh, because he may go quickly, he may go on for a long period, then I don't have a problem with it. One of the things the West Indies guys will say, or if it's the... Uh, Trimbig or Knight Riders is that Narayan is can be an asset when he fires, but if he comes in as he would have usually done in the past at nine or ten, he doesn't have the same impact and he doesn't give you the same value. Sometimes he won't bat, so he's wasted. So that's one of the things that also sort of allowed teams like the West Indies recently and TKR to use Narayan that weighed in his fight in his factor there. So my caveat is um, if that player can maybe even go at a quicker tempo than the normal opener, then I'd have it. But if I have guys like Aaron Finch, like KL Rahul, uh, David Warner, who did so well talk with 
Johnny Bairstow, I think it was a season ago for your Sunrisers Hyderabad team, where they were able in certainly in Warner's case to bat deep into the innings and almost win an IPL title off his own bat, then I want that guy or a couple of guys like that batting as many overs as possible. Yeah, I think I think the Ryan is such a unique example. Um, you know, I don't think there is many effective uh, pinch hitters in power play as to as to what he is. And the reason I say that is because just picking up the point that you made, Bish, his value down the order is minimal. His value at the top order at the top, the upside of his value at the top of the order is enormous. And the downside is minimal because it, it does not matter if he gets out. And the, the beauty of Narayan is he doesn't waste balls. I've seen so often over the past decade in 50 over cricket and in T20 cricket where pinch hitter comes in and soaks up valuable deliveries and gets a 10 off 10. And it's like you've stalled at the lights. It's like... Hang on a sec here. I'd much rather uh, it be a Kane Williamson that's 10 off 10 because I know he's going to convert that start into 60 off 40 and 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 other players of that calibre. So to me, those wasted uh, 10 balls, even though he got 10 runs, it, what it's done is stolen the opportunity of a class batsman that's paid money to bat and do it very, very well, stolen those 10 balls to give him the platform to get in to launch his innings. Another of the, another, another of the trade-offs that sort of related to the power play, and then I think this will also probably move us into to the middle overs too, and it's something that I think we have to consider with all batsmen, is um, the relationship between, or sort of how they approach their game. And I think it's best summarised by their boundary percentage against their dot ball percentage. So someone like Chris Gale is a player who faces a lot of dot balls and hits a lot of boundaries. That's his method. Um, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, someone like Virat Kohli is a player who faces very few dot balls and hits still a, a fair amount of boundaries, but nowhere near as many as Gale. And those two players are almost at two extremes of a continuum. And at which point all the different players exist between there. Some guys are more focused on strike rotation, essentially, and some guys are more focused on boundary hitting. Putting aside, I think you have, to, you have to have consideration of how players score their runs. It's not just how quickly they score them. You can have two players with very similar strike rates who adopt very different methods. I think it's about finding... Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've talked to the West Indian guys, a couple of the coaches who coach them to world titles a lot and discussed it with players. And it's just a natural way that West Indian players have gone about their business. Six hitting, that's been recorded uh, analytically by people like yourself and Tom and noticed and, and gone through. Um, but we've also discussed and I've also sort of put it out there as well. And I, I'm glad I referred to that uh, David Warner, Johnny Bairstow relationship at the top of the innings for Sunrise as Hyderabad. Uh, that while ago, because they were able to hit boundaries, not maybe as big six hitters as the West Indies, but they were also able to minimize a lot of the dot balls. And to me, that's the ideal dream. And I know one or two guys who've been coaching the West Indies have talked about an evolution in their play as we get into the middle overs, that we want to hit those boundaries. Chris Gale gets me nervous, and Marlon Samuels, I'm letting you know that, because if you soak up all those dot balls and then you're not there to make up at the end, 
those deliveries don't come back to you. So there's a pitfall in that. But as we get into the middle overs now, how do those players, and I want to get into the meat of it here, gentlemen, what are you looking for given the construct of bowling piece, off the ball piece, on the ball, stop the ball slightly coming into those middle overs? What are you looking for in your batters? Yeah, look, I, I think ideally you're looking for uh, versatility in your middle order. You firstly need that left-right hand combination. I think that is vital because the majority of those overs that you're referring to, Bish, are going to be bowled by spin. Whether it's left arm spin, right arm spin or wrist spin, uh, both left or right arm. So you've got a, a variety of slow bowling that you have to manage. And one of the, the, the challenge, challenges of facing uh, slow bowling and quality slow bowling, as we touched in uh, touched on last uh, podcast when we talked about the spinners and their dominance in this format of the game, is they have got, got the very good ones make it very hard for you to be able to score all round the ground. So the, one of the key messages from a coaching perspective, you're passing through to your um, middle order batsman is your ability to rotate the strike. So from ball one, you're getting off strike and getting the established batsman in because you've, you've obviously come in at a fall of a wicket. Someone is the other end that's probably got 20, 30, 40, 50 runs already in the bank and, and is going. So it's so important you don't starve that going player at the non-striker's end. He needs to be on strike as often as possible while you're establishing yourself. So therefore, you need the skills to be able to score 360. Uh, and I'm not talking quite to the extent of the A.B. de Villiers 360. You know, that that is wonderful if you've got that right. capability. But just the ability to sweep both sides, so sweep conventionally, but do a fine sweep, do a square sweep, do a sweep that's in front of square, because you will have fielders there stopping the sweep to try to restrict you from getting off strike, because the fielding team's objective is to keep the new batsman on strike as long as possible. Uh, your ability to use your feet to spin, your ability to use your crease, getting deep in your crease and be able to rotate the strike. But also, I think one skill which is which is really important for a middle-order player is courage. And I, I, I say courage because if there's a particular bowler that is right in your sweet spot and is the perfect matchup, you've got the courage to be able to press the button and take him down very, very early on in your innings, even though if you've only been in there for three or four balls, trusting your instinct, trusting your strength to be able to hit that player. Now, whether that's a sweep slog, whether that's hitting it straight down over the side screen, whatever the shot is, you've got the conviction to be able to execute that because that matchup, that delivery, that over that is perfectly matched to you is going to be lost if you're not brave. Just, just listening there to the, the number of skills that you've had to read out for someone who bats in the middle overs, it, it, I think it underlines something which I firmly believe that batting in the middle order, let's you know, talking between three and five here, I think is the hardest role um, in, in T20 batting personally. I think you have to be put, you'll put in a huge, hugely varied number of situations. You could come to the crease 
Uh, we, you know, we're talking specifically about the middle overs here, but you could come in at 10 for two or you could come in at 150 for two. You've got to be able to play the moving ball from seamers and you've got to be able to play spin well. You're most of the time going to be starting with five men out if, if things have gone relatively well in the power play. Um, so you're going to have to have power to clear five men. You've got to be a quick starter because you're at that point in the innings there from sort of seven to 15 overs where you're going to look to try and up the ante. You can't afford to sort of consume five, six, seven balls getting in. Um, as Moose said, you've got to be able to score 360, rotate and strike. And I think being a strong player of pace and spin is probably the main thing. Where, where we, obviously, we were touching on power play players needing to be better at facing spin these days. They still can be predominantly pace heavy because they're likely to face about 80% pace overs in the power play. In the middle overs, it's a far nearer 50-50 split. You've got to be a very versatile player. Um, I think generally opening the batting in T20 is easier. Um, you've obviously got two men up. The ball is hard and new. You're probably going to be facing pace, as I said. Um, so one of the really uh, interesting questions that sort of shapes T20 strategy these days is should your best batsman face the most balls, i.e. open the batting, or should your best batsman bat in the toughest situation? And it's something that England at the moment are encountering with Joss Butler. Do they open the batting with Butler and give him the maximum time? Or do they bat him down at three and four, where, or, or maybe five potentially, where things are more difficult? But he's such a good player that you think, well, he's going to be able to succeed there. And England have got other options at the top of the order. So that's one of the really difficult things about the, the middle order player is you're asking them to be their, your best player but you're also having to sort of weirdly utilise them in a position where they might not face as many balls as if they'd open. So what you mentioned Joss Butler there. Can you give our listeners another couple of examples, both of you, and what sort of strike rate is the minimum type of effect that players, and I know it's all dependent, all things being equal in that phase of the game? What are you looking for? From from a statistical standpoint, you're, you're looking at guys who I think can score sort of eight eight point five runs and over and and above um, is is what you're looking at. Being able to if you can if you can score at that pace through the middle of the innings, you're in the top bracket of players. And we're looking at guy you know the, probably the, the most famous player at this this role is Ab de Villiers. He, he you know he he's played the he has opened the batting in T20, but he's played the majority of his career in that middle over period. He comes in as I said in a vast array of situations, but is able to maintain a strike rate of sort of around 150 during that period and then kicking up towards 200 at the death. And he is sort of the absolute perfect ideal of a player, I think, who, who you'd want to play in that situation. He could play in any situation, Freddie. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. The, uh, I'm going to put a slightly different spin to that answer, um, Bish, in that... And with my coach's hat on, and that is I'm looking at a player that has the ability to consistently rebuild a partnership. Because from a coaching perspective, I look at when wickets fall, our ability to get to 20 again. And that is a partnership of 20. Because to me, the value of that rebuilding of suddenly we've been hit by a wicket but quickly get to 20 again. I'm not saying 20 off 10 balls. It may take 14 balls. It may take 15 balls. But a player that has the skill to be able to help the established batsman get to that 20 again as a partnership, we are as a team in a better position to capitalise on the next phase. 
But if we lose a wicket in that, say, for argument's sake, in the seventh over, and then suddenly we're losing another wicket in the ninth over, we're never going to get our total or chase down a total successfully on a consistent basis. But if we're working as a unit, as pairs, and establishing those partnerships, you see the up curve of strike rates when partnerships get beyond 20, how quickly they go up to, you know, either over 200 in a strike rate, purely because you've got two batsmen going. Yeah, I'd agree with what you both said there. And Freddie sort of illuminated some numbers, just emphasizing once again, or re-emphasizing in the power play, you get pace up to 77% in the middle overs. That drops drastically, moves us and just uh, concurring with what you said, 42% of pace in that middle overs. And then it goes up again at the end. So conditionally, depending on how things have started for you, you're also going to probably have some flexibility in your batting order, depending on how that goes as we get in to that last five which is one of the things that excites me when we've seen guys like uh, Maxwell, we've seen Andrew Russell do what he's done around the world. We've seen Karen Pollard uh, in the last IPL do what he did at the back end. A lot of people immediately thinking power, guys who can hit the ball the furthest in those that last phase, whether it's the last five, last six, last seven. Yeah, look, you've mentioned some serious power hitters there but um the the first thing i would say in that last phase the most valuable person is a top order player that has batted through the innings so if you've got a rohit sharma a virat kohli a david warner a johnny bairstow a butler uh, whoever it may be around the world that's a top class top order player if they're on 60 or 70 and they're going into the last phase of four overs, well, fasten your seatbelt because what they have the ability to do is make sure there's not a dot ball because they're in, they're familiar with the conditions, uh, they've, they've faced probably every bowler that's already bowled in the, in the match to that point, uh, understood the changes of pace that they're trying to deliver the deception they're trying to, to, to take advantage of, you know, the conditions might be slow or might be slightly uneven or whatever it might be, they're consistently going to perform better than a than a, a, a Russell, Pollard and all those amazing power hitters. But then if you've got a combination of an established top-order batter in and in comes Andre Russell, well you are in a very good position because we've, you know, I've had it, you know, firsthand uh, last season in uh, Kolkata where Sunrisers, I think it was the very first game of the tournament uh, last year where we had the game absolutely in the bag. Russell comes out, KKR needing about 14 and a half and over. I'm sort of nearly turning the page looking at game two and uh, Mr. Russell's got a different idea. <laughs> and it was just, it, it was phenomenal, Bish. It was phenomenal hitting. Uh, the run rate even pushed up, um, you know, beyond 16. But for him, it was a walk in the park. It was, it was like it 
was not an issue because of his incredible ability to hit the ball out the ground. So when you're hitting multiple sixes, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've got, you know, whether you're chasing 16 and over or not, you're going to be able to manage it and manage it comfortably. Just a, a couple of numbers there to just jump in on the back of what Mood said. He's talking about top order batsmen batting deep. Um, in the last four years, um, Virat Kohli scores at a strike rate of basically 200 in the death over. So if he reaches that period, he is exceptionally destructive. Just by way of comparison, for example, to Sara Pereira in that period, who is a specialised death overs hitter uh, across the last four years, scores at a strike rate of 179. So definitely agree with what Mood says on the point about top order guys going deep. There is huge value in that um, because for all the reasons he said, they're in, they're accustomed to the nature of the pitch, the bowlers, the light, everything about it. They're sort of right there and then and able to, as he said, score for every ball and hit those boundaries. So that's that's one point. Um, but secondly, as, as we're moving on to the, the sort of the growth of power hitting in the last you know 15 years, it's something we talked about in the first podcast. It has been remarkable. It's interesting how the role of the finisher has evolved. So in ODI cricket back in the day, um, we sort of saw them as these quite intelligent um, guys who'd be able to score 360, run hard, find the gaps, navigate their way through sort of in 50 over cricket run rates that might be sort of eight and over for a period. And then we saw a change and that came really with Pollard, I think. Pollard was the first guy who really took power hitting and made it a thing. Um, and, And he was sort of capable of scoring at you know, upwards of 10, 11, 12, 13 and over was something he could achieve because for him it was two big hits. And now in the last year, uh, the man that you've just been speaking about, Andre Russell, is taking it on to a new level. Um, there's, there are run rates now of 16 and over, which are no longer insurmountable for, insurmountable for him because that's just three hits in and over for him. And he's uh, so adept at clearing the ropes. And I think, you know, talking about the skills you require from those death overs players, you're looking at guys who generally are going to be facing, you know, Bish, you quoted the number of overs bowled by pace bowlers. It comes back up again in the death over. So you're looking at guys who can hit pace bowling well. Um, they're generally going to be facing quite a few Yorkers so they can get the ability to have that sort of low, that bottom hand power on those sort of low, low middled bats. Dhoni, obviously someone who, who, who's exploited that over the years, the ability to get under those full balls. Um, and then also some other players adopt a different method of scoring 360 degrees. So obviously AB is one of them, but someone like Dinesh Kartik is a finisher of a different mould, someone who scores 360. Russell Pollard, they're targeting down the ground. Yeah, I think the other thing that's evolved too, Freddie, is teams have tried to combat the likes of your Pollard and your, your Do- we've got to throw Dhoni in there because, you know, he's an amazing finisher and, you know, and consistently been so for over a decade. Um, uh, so Pollard, Russell, Dhoni, let's just use those three as an example, is that bowling attacks have tried their very best to, to, to adjust their lines, change the pace. So what we've seen particularly with those three is bowling attacks look to bowl the ball very wide of off stump. So they try to restrict those players to hitting to one side. So they're trying to get them to hit through the offside. And that worked for a very short period of time. But they very quickly adapted and 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 recognised that that was the challenge that they were facing moving forward. So they then practised their ability to hit the ball through the offside for four and six. So we're now seeing the likes of those three that, that have been mentioned hitting sixes over wide mid-off cover and backward point. 
which we'd never seen before. So when we first saw them hitting, generally it was over mid-off, around to deep square leg. That was their boundary hitting zone. Now their boundary hitting zone is really behind square on the leg side all the way to behind square through the offside. And of course they can hit a boundary behind themselves if they get a, a th thick outside edge or an inside edge that misses leg stump if they're lucky. But they've become so hard to bowl to now because their, their range has increased in, in six hitting uh, and their, their ability to hold their swing if bowlers are trying to deceive them with knuckle balls or back of the hand slower balls. So they've adjusted their swing to be able to counter that change of pace and then hit through the ball and it still disappears into the, into the crowd. And immediately my mind runs to guys like Nicholas Puran, uh, Rishabh Pant, just as two young guys coming through the system who are looking to be those 360 players who can bat in the middle, bat in the end. If you give them a chance, they'll open the batting uh, for you as well with great effect as they get older as well. And you you, you were alluding, Freddie, to someone like a Moin Ali earlier as well, who you felt could be a better utilised player than what England have done with it. Yeah, well, and this is about knowing players' strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and Moeen at the moment is being used by England largely as a death-overs hitter. He's coming in at number seven in their T20 side. He's actually one of the best players in the middle overs in the world. He's an exceptional player of spin. He's a left-hander, which is a benefit for the middle overs um, in that it can counter leg spin, which is obviously the predominant uh, type of bowling at the moment in T20 cricket. Moeen is a phenomenal spin hitter. Um, and I, I'd like to see England be a little bit more flexible um, I think I'd like to see teams generally be flexible with their batting orders. I think we've, we've spoken today across the show about the different types of players required from the different phases. And I think in T20 cricket, we need to disassociate ourselves from traditional batting orders. A player doesn't have a number. I'm not a number three. You're a, you're a middle overs player or you're a death overs player. And, and, and that, that is the key point to take away. Andre Russell was carded to bat probably at number six for KKR most of the time last year. But he would come in however many wickets were down after about 15 overs, and there's probably an argument that he should have been coming in earlier. But batting, your batting number is, is, is not the same in T20 as it is in other formats. And yeah, Moeen is someone who I think England should, should utilise higher up. You know, potentially if they play Afghanistan in the World Cup, he could maybe come in at four rather than seven. Um, and just one, one last thing as well. Earlier I spoke about um, the continuum of dot balls on one side to boundaries on the other. It also came up there. I think you've got power hitters who target, as Mood said, between sort of square leg and point, and then 360 players at the other end of the continuum. Um, the guys who are super freaks are the guys who can do both. And, and A.B. de Villiers is, uh, again, I bring him up, brought him up earlier. He's so good because he can do both. He can hit with power and he can score 360. Richard Pant as well is another one who's up and coming, as you mentioned, Bish. Paran, if you can score 360 and hit down the ground, then you're a nightmare for, for fielding captains, as I'm sure Moods would agree. Yeah, well, the, the two young uh, left-handers you, you mentioned, Pant and uh, Puran, are very, very exciting. So we've got many years of uh, enjoyment to come out of those two players. There's no question of no question about that. The, just the just to just to finish on your point around the batting order and about set positions. It's a really good point, and that's again a mindset. Uh, we're so conditioned as as cricket coaches, players, followers. Um, that oh, he bats three or four or five and, oh, why isn't he going in now? And, you know, it, so not only is it the 
there the, the needs to be a change of mindset of the the, the, the viewer uh, and answers people that coach and commentate and analyse the game, but the player, you know, the, the player can uh, uh, can really be set back mentally if they're feeling they're being constantly discarded in a, in a batting order. If they're suddenly positioned, oh, listen, you're batting four today and, you know, da-da-da, we'll try to keep that consistent over the next few games so you get a real feel for that position. But if circumstances dictate that that player is not the right player to go in at that point of time, well, it's it's that player accepting and understanding that. So the the position that that I've held uh, for for many years as a coach in this format of the game, that's one of the great challenges is those discussions that you have uh, candid and open and honest conversations you have with players around their role and the clarity around their role. And I think that uh, that is one of the, the huge challenges is trying to get a squad that understands that it's not always going to work absolutely perfectly in their favour because what we're trying to do as a group of players, so 20 of us, we're trying to get the very best outcome over a season of franchise cricket and everyone's going to play a critical role and hopefully that critical role is going to come when you're at your very best. As we wind down, because we, we've gone for a fair amount of time, as you'd expect, there are a number of permutations that you can discuss. And just a reminder, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Pocket Cast, all some of which are new to me. Um, the unenviable task, if you had to pick a top six or seven, who are some of the names and this is going to annoy quite a few of our listeners and cause a lot of debate that you would have current top six or seven batters. Current, not historical, but current. Where would we go? Where would we start? Oops. I'll throw a name out there to start who I think has to be on the team sheet. And for me, that's David Warner. Um, I think he's the, the preeminent opening batsman in T20 cricket for the reason that we discussed earlier in him combining that ability to hit boundaries with his ability to rotate strike is remarkably consistent. Uh, people, people talk about anchor players like uh, Williamson and, and, and uh, Coley and Smith who face a lot of balls. Warner faces as many balls as them and scores faster, which is a remarkable thing. And I think for me, he would be one of the first names on any team. I'm not disagreeing with that. He, he He's... Uh, certainly opening the batting and I, I would have Rohit Sharma as his partner uh, I think oh. Rohit Sharma for a long period of time has proven that uh, th- that he's a match winner he's played in many successful teams uh, he brings the right left hand combination to that opening pair so I'm throwing Rohit Sharma as his partner not going to disagree with that just, just as, a, as a backup uh, KRL's form has been really good of late, uh, and I think that he is a superb player in this format. Uh, quickly down to number three, any disagreement with A.B. de Villiers? Yeah, look, uh, I, I would definitely have A.B. de Villiers at three or four, but again, the debate is if if I'm if I'm having Coley in my top order, I've got Coley mm. at three, not at four, and I've got A.B. at four. And again, depending on circumstances, if we're getting off to a flyer, um, then I'm having a very 
challenging conversation with Mr. Coley. So, <laughs> Virat, AB's going in now. Let's talk about it over a cup of tea. Uh, Freddie, give that, me some. That, well, I mean, just 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 on that you know, on the point of Coley, you know, that 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 um that position, that number three position, um, and that role of anchor is a really interesting one. And you know, I touched on it earlier, the ability to come in and and you know firefight from sort of ten for two, or also come in later on. Um, the, the role of an anchor is a really interesting one. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops in the coming years. Because as I said, likes of Warner are now managing to face as many balls as the likes of Coley, but do it at an even faster rate. And now obviously Warner's a freak. I'm not saying that everyone's going to be able to replicate what he can do. Um, but we, we, it will be interesting to see how that role evolves and whether guys like Williamson and Coley in years to come are going to be asked to have to score at a slightly faster rate. We've already seen them evolve impressively in the last few years, but they might have to continue doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I, no, no disagreements with, with someone like Coley at three, uh, De Villiers at four. Um, and, and you, you might be then looking towards potentially a left-hander at five. Uh, I mean, Richard Pant, someone that we've mentioned, I think Pant's criminally underrated by, by the current Indian management. I definitely have him in my team. Um, but he's someone who brings a left-hand um, or a left-hander into that middle order. He's a strong player of pace and spin. Um, I don't know about any other left-handers that spring to mind. Yeah, Nicholas Puran, I think, you, you, I, I would have a strong debate around his position uh, in that position at number five. Uh, number six uh, and seven, personally, I'd have Butler and Russell. Mm. Your Pollard, yeah, Pollard, Russell. Yeah, I mean, those, those, those guys that the. Yeah, and what would be nice about Butler and, and, and Russell together is, is you get that 360 degree player playing with the, the power of Russell, which whereas if you've got Pollard, and Russell, it's two sort of quite similar down the ground hitters. Um, but I mean, it's a, that's a nice three to have to choose from. Yeah, I, 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 it, that's the reason I sort of went with Butler because I just think he can hit holes that Russell can't hit. Um, and there's not many holes that Russell can't hit. But <laughs> I think I think Butler really does complement that finish. So if you've got those two, you know, facing the last four to five overs, well, it it it'd be a, a an absolute nightmare for any fielding captain or bowling attack. So let's just go over that. We had, um, we had Warner, Rohit, Coley, Tavillias, Pant, uh, Russell and Butler. That's a, that's a pretty decent, <laughs> that's a decent top seven. The, the, the other one just we haven't one talked about is Maxwell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Maxwell's got to have a, he's got to be in that uh, conversation as well. His, his strike rate is uh, through the roof. So the number one T20 batsman in the world today, Babarazam, doesn't get a look in anywhere. No, because his role and the way he plays, he's competing with Rohit, uh, with um, both Rohit Sharma and Virat Kohli. Both very similar um, in the way that they construct an inning. So, uh, look, I, I'm a huge fan of Babarazam. I think, wow. What an exciting player. But I think at the moment, Coley, with the number of T20-hundreds that he's already scored and at the rate he's doing it and the consistency of the way he's doing it, well, you know, he's always on my team sheet. All right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We've stretched it a little further than we would have wanted. Again, to nearly an hour. Um, good things to think about. Great thoughts and uh, I look forward to when we get together next time and stay safe. All the best to you, to our listeners. 
Uh, we're right there. We're standing with you. We're, we're praying for an end to this pandemic around the world so we can actually get back to seeing some action on the field. But we're going to broaden our topics as we go along. Thanks, Freddie. Thank you, Tom, once again. Mm -hmm.